Live from the Mert Park, USA, I'm Tavis Smiley, and you're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. So glad to see you and me back in stride again. Our phone number, 1-800-920-1580, 1-800-920-1580. All of our socials can be found at KBLA 1580. That's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, everything at KBLA 1580. Let me also invite you to download our app. And listen to us live anywhere in the world, but only if you download the app right now at KBLA 1580. Should you miss us any day in real time, check out the podcast of our program by going to the app, the website, Anchor, Spotify, Apple, so many places to get the podcast of this program and listen at your leisure should you miss us any day in real time. But I am delighted to have you along live with us today for the next three hours. You can also watch the live stream of this program by tapping on the KBLA TV icon on our app or by going to our YouTube channel. And let me also invite you to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at The Real Tavis Smiley and get Twitter updates at Tavis Smiley. Another great show on tap for you today. In our second hour, we all recall the moment when Buffalo Bills safety Damar Hamlin went into full cardiac arrest on the field during a nationally televised game against the Cincinnati Bengals. It was a terrifying sight to behold as we all watched Hamlin receive CPR live on the field. He was later carted off and hospitalized, where he would spend multiple days in critical condition. Players were shook. The game was abruptly canceled. And now, (laughs) cleared by doctors to return to football activity, DeMar Hamlin has announced that he plans on making a comeback to the NFL. All right, would you go back? We will talk sports in hour two with our sports guy, Ray Richardson, and his co-host on our weekend sports show, Out of Bounds, Neil Scarborough. There's a lot more sports news to cover beyond DeMar Hamlin's comeback, including, of course, the NBA playoffs and that record-breaking contract for Philadelphia Eagles quarterback Jalen Hurts, negotiated by his brilliant black female agent, Nicole Lynn. We'll talk sports today in hour two with Ray Richardson and Neil Scarborough. In our third hour, have you ever heard of Charles Ignatius Sancho? If not, you're not alone, but you should, and you will, come hour three. We'll be joined by author Patterson Joseph, who will tell us all about the life and legacy of Charles Ignatius Sancho. We commence today's program in dialogue with Alyssa Quart about why the so-called American dream has become increasingly out of reach for so many Fellow citizens, are there flaws? Are there delusions of the American dream? Has our obsession with self-reliance led to a society that is less healthy, less secure, and less fulfilled? What is at the heart of our collective suffering? Alyssa Quartz's new book is titled Bootstrapped, Liberating Ourselves from the American Dream, and I am pleased to welcome her to this program. Alyssa, how are you today? Oh, I'm fine. I'm so happy to hear you again, Tavis. <laughs> uh, that's kind of you say. Thank you for saying that. I'm happy to have you on, and I'm glad we've got an hour. Uh, your book is a is a uh, the polemic, I would call it, uh, is a beautiful and fascinating read and um, an enlightening read, and I'm delighted to have this hour to sort of uh, interrogate um, your, your text. Let me start with this. As you probably heard in my inflection, um, since you're so happy to hear my voice again, <laughs> I laid <laughs> I laid on that word from in your in your in your title bootstrapped, liberating ourselves from the American dream. Uh, unpack that word from for me. Yeah, so I, I the what I found with my reporting is that the American dream in the last 
let's say, 70, maybe 50 to 70 years has become a burden for people. It's something that doesn't work for them, that so many of us feel like we have to achieve on our own, succeed economically entirely on our own. Uh, Our health is our our own. Raising our children is our own. And the original American dream, as it was coined in 1931, didn't mean that. It was a more expansive and meritocratic idea of what that would mean. The original author used the word our American dream. And now it's become my American dream, right? It's us struggling on our own. And uh, I, I love what you just said about uh, that the, the athlete going back on the field, pushing himself. You know, I mean, this is part of what that is now. It's mm-hmm. the grind set. It's nine to five. It's comebacks. It's people having to push themselves to the limit physically, you know, and have many side hustles, right? So that it really, I thought, oh, yeah, this is part of the part of the thesis of the book when you were bringing them up, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what, what happened um, since you since you pegged this to 50 or 70 years? years ago when something changed or some things changed, what happened 50 to 70 years ago that sort of uh, morphed the American dream into whatever it is these days? Well, I mean, it definitely worsens with Reagan, right, with the idea of the welfare queen, uh, who, by the way, was one woman, um, and he called her the woman in Chicago, mm-hmm. and basically was a scam artist who was, uh, you know, draining the coffers of, you know, welfare, but that was just one person, and he, he used it to slander everybody who used who got any you know local or federal aid you know, and so that that worldview of punishing people who need help really intensifies in that time, right? And you know, it's not just Republicans; it's also people like Bill Clinton who you know wanted to end welfare as we know it. Mm-hmm. Um, and just the lack of social support has intensified. You know, we don't really have much of a social safety net anymore. Unionization has decreased. You know, there's been a whole set of forces that have made it really hard for people to succeed on their own. Um, you know, the cost of education, the cost of health, et cetera. So some of this is about, you know, unfettered, you know, marketplace, too. Mm-hmm. You know, it's be- companies feeling like they can charge anything and, um, you know, CEO pay outstripping worker pay by, you know, 399 times, you know, more CEO is paid than the lowest paid worker. Mm-hmm. Um, let, let me ask this question. And again, we got an hour, so we got some time to unpack this. Um, in, in essence, what is it that you think we need vis-a-vis the American dream to liberate ourselves from exactly? Well, I think we have to liberate ourselves from the idea that it's something that we have to accomplish solely on our own, on our own yeah. and that there's, that there's something wrong with us if we can't. I mean, that there's a lot of blame when I go and out and report on this with people. Why, why wasn't I able to pay off my student loans? Mm-hmm. You know, why wasn't I able to own my house? Why, why am I not able to, you know, have a better economic future for my kids than I had? And, uh, you know, the message of this book is this is we have to liberate ourselves from the, that idea. It's kind of a fiction. You know, and a lot of this is uh, preordained to make really hard for ordinary people to achieve those ends, right? So once we understand that, it's not like, oh, everything's going to magically get better. But what I call this message radical self-help because it frees you from the idea that it's, it's the self that's to blame. Mm-hmm. Um, just getting started, as I, as I knew, uh, we would need the entire hour to, to unpack 
all that is in this text. It's called Bootstrapped, Liberating Ourselves from the American Dream. And there is a lot to interrogate in this hour. This notion that she's just raised a list of that is of the individual versus the collective. Put another way, the our versus the my of the American dream. Uh, that notion of grind set, uh, uh, which is a different kind of mindset. Uh, pardon the, uh, pardon the, uh, the rhyme. Um, and this notion of a social safety net. Uh, and not to mention uh, the unfettered markets that she talked about. There's a lot in this book, uh, but clearly something has gone wrong with the so-called American dream. Even as we continue to preach uh, this notion of American exceptionalism, that we are better than everybody else, that God apparently is uh, blessing us and smiling on us and cursing and frowning everybody else. I don't buy it. Uh, and yet that's the notion that we continue to advance in this country. Uh, every president stands up uh, once a year at the State of the Union address and tells us that the state of our union is strong. That's a lie. And there's a lot to interrogate about that lie in this hour. With the author of Bootstrap, Liberating Ourselves from the American Dream, Alyssa Quarter, you're listening to right now on KBLA Talk 1580. Let's start with some basics, Alyssa. How did this 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 notion uh, I don't want to call it a promise. Maybe it is a promise. You tell me. But this notion that uh, that your responsibility is to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I might add, whether you have boots or not, that's your responsibility. It has become, to my mind, a foundational myth uh, in this experiment in democracy. How did that happen? Yeah, well, we should, we should probably go back to the beginning of the word bootstrap. Mm -hmm. Pulling yourself up by your bootstraps was a joke initially. It was coined in the 19th century to describe somebody trying to do something really foolish, <laughs> like trying to almost jump over themselves on their skis or, you know, doing a somersault. You'd have to be Simone Biles to really pull yourself up by your bootstraps. So it became something incredibly serious, something that people took as writ uh, over decades. Um, and it became this thing that was like, you need to be able to, you know, function on your own steam and forget family, government, uh, you know, forget the pri privilege of race, class, gender, right? None of that's important. It's all mm -hmm. you. And that, that's what pulling up yourself up by your bootstraps means. I mean, it, I'm not the only one who's critiqued it. I mean, Martin Luther King did. Mm -hmm. um, so has AOC. But, um, you know, these words are really meaningful. The fact that this is what people, kids are told this in Ohio public school. Oh, you got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know. And it's something that, uh, it's a way that people now punish themselves and, and judge others. You know, oh, you haven't, you haven't managed to do that thinking that about their neighbors. Mm -hmm. it, it's one thing for, for someone or persons or for a system, for that matter, to advance that notion uh, of, uh, 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 brittle self-sufficiency, individual determination, personal accomplishment. It's one thing for that to be pushed in our direction. It's another thing, it seems to me, Alyssa, for so many fellow citizens to have bought into that narrative. What do you make of that reality? Yeah, well, I think some of it is, is fear-based. And, you know, for instance, with like the MAGA types, a lot of those people are pretty middle class. I mean, I think the average uh, the average earnings was like 71000 a year <clears throat> for people who are supporting Trump. Mm -hmm. You know, these are not economically struggling people, but they might think, oh, I'm going to lose everything, right? So, so they have this kind of loss aversion, this fear of loss. And so then they start pointing fingers at people who they see as having not worked as hard and all these terrible things. I mean, there was a study done showing that, uh, you know, 
a, a large number of Republicans think that uh, people are poor because they haven't worked hard enough. Mm-hmm. And this ideology has just sunk into the bones of a lot of people. And so it's going to take uh, counter myths like the ones I'm trying to spread to really change, change some of the, you know, it's, I, I call it a folk psychology. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like a folk psychology. Yep. What, what, what are some of those um, counter myths that you're, that you're trying to spread by your own admission? Yeah, so some of the counter myths are, you know, that it's really important, you know, to have politicians who have, you know, worked for, uh, worked for a living, uh, who run, ran an automobile shop, or, you know, I'm thinking of Maxwell Alejandro Frost, who was just elected down in Florida to representatives who, who told people, I don't have enough money right now to rent an apartment in D.C. He told the media that and was mocked for it. But I thought that was a beautiful thing to be like, I am 26 years old. I don't come from wealth. Um, you know, I'm a very bright young man and a political hope, but, you know, I need to stay on my friend's couches. You know, these counter myths that you can be successful and still not wealthy and still, you know, struggling and still able to identify with ordinary people's experience. And then the, some of the counter myths are spreading things like, you know, mutual aid and uh, cooperatives and unions and I mean I have a whole host of solutions that are actually part of America's history that we don't talk about that much so that's you know mutual aids were you know Du Bois wrote about them I mean they were a really important part of 19th and early 20th century banking and farming and other you know kind of food food distribution and you know uh, we don't talk about them so much, and they're they're the part of the American dream as well. Yeah, I was. I, let me confess to you, Alyssa, that as I was going through your text, um, uh, my mind kept going back to to one central fact, at least as I see it, and that is uh, when you suggested earlier in this conversation that this notion of the American dream initially started out as an idea of our American dream, and somewhere along the way it morphed into this notion of my American dream. We went from our to my. Um, and I'm trying to think how we could possibly in real time think that there is an our American dream. This is the most multicultural, multiracial, multiethnic America ever, which I think is a beautiful thing on the one hand. On the other hand, our country has never been as politically divided, say nothing of income inequality and economic uh, divisions. I'll get to that later, but we've never been politically as divided uh, as we are right now. So I'm not even sure your counter narratives, respectfully notwithstanding, we could ever embrace the notion of our American dream. Does that make sense to you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's part of the, the, the problem. It's these terrible, terrible divisions. But I think they do start with this total contempt that we have for anyone, anyone's vulnerability, including our own. Mm-hmm. So that's that's even beneath people's values. I think this is a sort of fear of being vulnerable, dependent, anybody else being vulnerable and dependent. Mm. That's a, that's a powerful phrase. Um, it hit me when you said it, uh, that we have a certain kind of contempt for vulnerability, a contempt for vulnerability. Um, unpack that for me. Well, yeah. So I talk about something in my book I call the art of dependence mm-hmm. and that's people who, you know, all of us, like one in four of us are disabled, you know, people who need little assistance, you know, or they need a lot of assistance, economic, physical, emotional, you know, what have you, and that there can be something very beautiful, and there's a craft and a skill and a kind of grace in being able to both give 
and receive other, other people's needs, right? And like to have that dependence recognized and to recognize how we are dependent on <clears throat> things like infrastructure, our cities, our highways, you know, the, our families, whatever, our schools. And that, that, that's part of the beginning of getting away from the contempt to, to this, this idea of American independence is so deeply ingrained and toxic to some extent, you know, like we're taught from as children that we have to do everything on our own and that, you know, America is a country of rugged individualism, you know, mm-hmm. when we're, as we age. And I think that the contempt may have to start at, at kind of relearning ideas around what it means to take care of each other and to, to create things together. Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to imagine how that would ever happen in this moment. <laughs> yeah, no, good. No, yeah, good, good, good luck with that, Alyssa. Good luck with that project. Uh, oh, my God, Tavis, you're so funny. No, I, 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 I'm keeping it real. Uh, I, I can't see that happening, but let me let me, let me me keep hope alive, as Jesse Jackson would say. I'll keep hope alive on that one. Let, let, well, let, okay, wait, but Tavis, Tavis, wait, wait. Sure, sure. But it's happening in some communities. That's right? true. And that is the true. The point is, in these communities, we need to feel proud, proud in that, mm-hmm. pride in that. So yeah. let's just forget about the rest of them. <laughs> let's no. just talk about our set, you know, the people that we can, we have, we already know want to connect to each other and maybe feel like I've got to make it on my own. I've got to be a success. And that's true. We, we all have friends and family that are like this, right? right? And how they might feel differently about their own capacity to lean on each other or like be connected to people in their community and see it, see that as an achievement rather than just, you know, making a hundred thousand dollars, you know? Yeah. Let, let, let me do this now. This seems in some ways like I'm jumping ahead, but it's okay. I can, I can, I can keep uh, time and space as can you. Um, uh, but I say, I feel like I'm jumping ahead. Um, I, I feel like I need to ask right now, given what you've just said about the fight back. And again, we could do that later in the hour, but, but talk to me about the fight back. It, it is not as if, that these things are foregone, these realities that you're talking about in this text, um, uh, liberating ourselves from the American dream. It's not as if these things have to be a foregone conclusion. There is some fight back. So I take your point that there are people pushing back against these. What, what have you learned about the fight back against this notion that we can only do it by ourselves, and if you don't do it as an individual, then something's wrong with you? Yeah, I mean, I talked to so many people. I mean, I'm thinking of uh, Dr. Armin Henderson, who uh, would... During the pandemic, he gave COVID tests to unhoused people in Miami, and he was a doctor during the day. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, he did this for free. You know, um, he had his kits donated by a local pediatrician, and he spent 20 hours a week doing this. And it was treacherous back then, right? Nobody was vaccinated, and he was going on the street and doing this. And that was part of how, you know, he felt he was making a, a difference and, you know, part of a kind of volunteer culture. And, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying that this is the answer, though, I have to say, Tavis, because volunteerism, you know, it, I call it the dystopian social safety net. It's, even Armin Henderson said, this is sad that I have to do this. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to be this person. Um, you know, I, I, want, I want our government to have provided this, or I want, uh, you know, uh, like to, there to be massive philanthropy dollars heading to, into Miami to pay for this, not, not him doing this on his own after work. So I think, you know, but that was beautiful. There was a whole culture of volunteers, you know, during the pandemic doing this kind of work. 
There's something called participatory budgeting, Mm -hmm. where local citizens and like hundreds of cities around the country get to be part of their local budget, you know, budget making bodies, you know, local government deciding where their parks go or like, you know, if there should be new bathrooms in the schools, right? Reallocating money away from the police sometimes and towards these things. I, I, I talked to a lot of people at mutual aids, which people, maybe listeners know this from the pandemic. They popped up during the pandemic and they helped, you know, elderly people, uh, uh, members of the community delivered food and medicine for free to members of their community. And there were like a thousand or more of them around the country. So these are just a few of the ones mm-hmm. that I found and encountered. I was talking to a young lady who works in our works in this building at this station. Her name is Charlotte. I was talking to her the other day in the hallway, and she was telling me um, that she has for, for quite some time now uh, distributed food for free every Friday. She has a, a Friday food giveaway. And she was telling me how the lines have grown longer and longer over the last year or so. Uh, once the government stopped those checks, uh, the lines for people getting uh, food every Friday in her food line has grown longer. And I read other articles suggesting that other charities uh, are, are, are experiencing the same reality. Um, since you mentioned volunteerism, my mind went immediately to that story and that conversation with Charlotte uh, about this notion, as I see it, of charity versus justice. When you talk about the American dream, uh, one has to, it seems to me, talk about the distinction between charity and justice. And we're a country that loves charity. We'll talk about volunteering and all the and all the things connected to it. But that's a far different thing than justice when it comes to the American dream, is it not? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Cla- Clara Barton, right? She created the American Red Cross. And she kind of put in play this, like, uh, idea that, uh, you know, uh, a hand up, not a hand out, mm-hmm. right? That there was a distinction. And, but to me that, okay, fine, it was wonderful that she created the American Red Cross, but why not a handout if somebody actually needs, needs something, mm-hmm. right? So I think there's, there's a, again, this is part of the contempt for vulnerability and dependence that, you know, George Bush can talk about a thousand points of light, but um, if some of those points of light were coming from the federal government, yeah, he wouldn't no. be so happy about it, you nope. know? I take your and point. So, yeah. So, but you know, and I also look at some of the countries where there's a lot of volunteerism. You know, New Zealand, Netherlands, uh, and they also had the strongest government-supported social safety net. So, uh, this whole idea that, like, we have in America, that you have to either be a volunteer culture or you have to be this culture of no. You know, the big nanny state is just not true. No, I take your point. It can be uh, not either or, but both hand. Um, we'll talk about that more when we come forward after news, traffic and sports. And I want to get uh, Alyssa Quartz take on this notion of American exceptionalism that I raised earlier that we continue to advance in this country. Never mind what the data suggests. Um, what about American exceptionalism? As she sees it, um, she mentioned unfettered markets earlier. And I want to get her take on what role these unfettered markets have played in the uh, the downgrading, if you will, of the American dream. Alyssa Quarter is our guest. Her book is called Bootstrapped, Liberating Ourselves from the American Dream. She's on KBLA Talk 1580. I'm Tavis Smiley. Our guest at this hour is Alyssa Court. And you are listening to KBLA Talk 1580, and we're glad about it. Her book, Alyssa's book, that is, is called Bootstrapped, Liberating Ourselves from the American Dream. Uh, in case you've just tuned in, we interrogated that, that word from earlier in this conversation, liberating ourselves from the American Dream. Uh, And we've established in this conversation already that the American dream started out as our American dream. Now it is my American dream. And we're sort of pushing back on this notion that um, everything is about individual determination. Everything is about brutal self-sufficiency. Everything is about 
personal accomplishment. And if you can't pull it off by yourself, then we all look at you uh, and say there must be something wrong with you. Uh, Alyssa has unpacked in this hour already what she calls uh, uh, contempt for vulnerability. It's hard to argue with that, that there is in this country, sadly, a contempt for people's vulnerability. Um, just a quick way to catch you up in case you've just tuned into this conversation. Uh, again, with uh, Alyssa about her new book, it's called Bootstrapped, Liberating Ourselves from the American Dream. Um, this notion of American exceptionalism that I raised earlier in this conversation, Alyssa, what is your critique of it in real time? You mean that that we are in some ways superior, um, a superior country yeah. for people? Uh, yep. Um, well, I mean, it, you just have to look at the numbers to 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 see that this is not the case. You know, um, uh, we have uh, Americans who. Um, you know, CEOs make, making $211 million during the pandemic. And meanwhile, uh, worker pay uh, over the past 40 years has fallen um, by nearly three percentage points of uh, gross domestic product. You know, so uh, so that's like around 4000 a year for employed worker. They're earning less. Um, and so, the, the, you know, we, we don't support people. And we also, honestly, um, the richest Americans were usually born on at least second base, usually third base. You know, there's a, a group that found in 2012 that over 60% of Forbes 400 list of the richest Americans were already well off when they began their careers. And so I think this idea that uh, anybody can make it is just not true and that the Kind of support this country is giving its ordinary people, its, its regular working people, is just not enough, and that that to me is where what makes this, this country not not a superior country in the least. You know, it's like this is not um, this is not a great place for a lot of people to live. Yeah, um, one of the things, <clears throat> excuse me, with regard to American exceptionalism, one of the things that I've found myself pushing back against, Alyssa, uh, time and time again over the years is this notion uh, that X, Y, and Z is possible only in America. You hear that line all the time. Only in America could one do X. Only in America could one do Y. Only in America is this possible. And sadly, many of my uh, black brothers and sisters got into using that line and advancing it uh, around the election of Barack Obama. That only in America was this story possible. Indeed, Obama first put that notion out when he gave the speech, the big speech that put him on the national radar at the Democratic Convention in Boston where John Kerry was nominated. Obama advances this notion of only in America is my story possible. Well, respectfully, that's really not just true. It's not true. And then when he got elected, a whole bunch of black folks started saying only in America could this be possible. Well, the reality is that just because Barack Obama got elected president does not mean that your black behind can do anything in America. It doesn't mean that. Barack Obama was exceptional in a variety of ways. Uh, there were a number of things that allowed him to be elected. We're glad about it. He got two terms out of it. Good, good for him, good for the country, uh, good for history. But at the end of the day, his mere election to the presidency does not mean that you can do anything in America. I'm raising this now because it seems to me to connect to the American dream that many people have, that the American dreams that if you, uh, the American dream suggests that if you work hard, you do this, you do that, you play by the rules, that anything is hap- anything is possible in America, uh, and it, there is no other place like this on the globe. Um, your notion about that 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 frame that certain things are possible only in America. Yeah. So, I mean, 
you know, part of American exceptionalism is that it's a distinctive country, which that's clearly true. <laughs> but, mm. but yeah, the economic part, if we look at the mobility numbers, I mean, in the 1940s, uh, someone born in the 1940s had like a 92% chance of equaling or exceeding their parents in terms of earning and other, you know, measures. And then, uh, someone born in the 80s had a, had a 50% chance. So, you know, mobility has just gone down. Mm. So I think some of this is like, this country, and this is why we have all this nostalgia and these people, you know, wanting to return to the past, although we know how racist and sexist the past was, right? Mm-hmm. But, they, you know, there were things, there was greater mobility, right? And it was, it was probably for some people, not all of us, right? But there's not that much mobility at this point, you know? Um, and I think of what uh, Tressy McMillan uh, Cotton said, which was trickle-down economics wasn't the best experience for people like me. Mm-hmm. And trickle-down economics has been, you know, one of the ruling uh, uh, features of our economy, you know, starting in the Reagan era. Yeah. Um, you raised the issue earlier of uh, these unfettered markets. Indeed, they are. What's your critique of uh, our unfettered markets vis-a-vis the American dream? Well, yeah, I mean, I just think that there's, um, very little way, as I was saying, about all the people in the Fortune 400 list that were born, you know, very well off to begin with, 60% of them born well off. It, it, it just is not a, a country that anymore in which you can start with very little and rise to the top of the ranks. I mean, there are a few exceptions. But I think knowing that, um, uh, yes, we can start you know, pushing for, you know, uh, more uh, expansive educational possibilities and the things that might make that uh, possible for people who didn't start with wealth, but we also can start forgiving ourselves when we don't do as well as we would like economically, because we, we need to realize that it is, I mean, it is kind of poised against us, these systems, and poised against most of us. Yep. You mentioned earlier, Alyssa, the, the drama that unfolded, uh, again, vis-a-vis the American dream during the Reagan era. Uh, my mind uh, went back uh, when you said that almost immediately to the film Wall Street starring one Michael Douglas, uh, who, as you recall, played the character uh, Gordon Gekko. Uh, and the line that became famous out of that movie uh, uh, from Gordon Gekko is that greed is good. Greed is good. To what extent has greed impacted, hollowed out, if you will, the American dream as we know it? I think a lot. I mean, I think, you know, uh we, we have people, you know, we have the Elon Musks of this world. First of all, this is another thing. They, a lot of them claim to be self-made, getting back to my bootstrapped idea. They claim to have pulled themselves up from their bootstraps. Again, they came from relative or extreme wealth. And then they're um, now, you know, trying to kind of torture the rest of us with, mm. with their platforms. And we have, we have Trump, who also pretends to be self-made, astonishingly. And fools the voters who who believe he's self-made. This was a study that was done that that many of the voters for Trump believed he was self-made. Mm-hmm. And and I think this is this is where greed and sort of this claim of being self-actualized really um, is is a specter that we have to um, try to puncture in this country. And um, you know we have. Uh, you know, I have this, these quotes from these, these guys. They're so greedy. They're like, you know, I, I look, somebody from Kinko said, you know, I look, I want to be looking down in space and thinking that could be in my, 
you know, Earth could be in my portfolio. You know, mm-hmm. these kind of statements that these folks make. Um, and then, as I said, the, the amount they made during the pandemic when people were struggling and, you know, in such bad shape. I mean, we need to look at that, these disparities. Um, and, you know, I, I talk about, uh, I also talk about you're asking for collective solutions, you know, movements where people are thinking differently about their wealth, like mm-hmm. actual rich people who want their taxes to be more fair and policies to be more fair, even if it hurts them. And that to me is another new development of that's more collective and community oriented that we should be applauding. I call them uh, uh, the transparent rich or class traders. Mm-hmm. One of them posted their tax returns. They're very wealthy to show how they benefited from, you know, tax policy and loopholes and all that kind of stuff, you know, and I think we need more of that also from the very rich in this country just to just show uh, income inequality. Yep. It is clear that this redefining, if you will, of the American dream from our to my has uh, steered us away, as you would say, uh, from these robust social programs. Uh, that could uh, address the root causes of our problems. When we come forward, I want to ask whether or not um, it is possible to make a U-turn in that regard. We've been steered in one direction, but can we uh, make a U-turn? We'll get uh, an answer to that question and a great deal more when we come forward with the author of Bootstrapped, Liberating Ourselves from the American Dream. Her name is Alyssa Court, and she's on KBLA Talk 1580. Clear, Alyssa, in your book, um, you make it clear, I should put it that way, uh, what has happened to the American dream as we have known it? Uh, as I said earlier, we've been we've been directed in a in a particular uh, 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 way. We've we've uh, we've steered ourselves away from these social programs that could address the root causes of what we face. And yet, I'm curious as to whether or not you think the damage is irreparable, or it's possible to make a U-turn. Well, you know, I think again <clears throat> during the pandemic we saw a lot of different. Uh, things like from these mutual aids I wrote wrote about, told you about, mm-hmm. to um, different kinds of social programs, right? We had, um, you know, eviction moratorium. We had uh, SNAP and Medicaid, uh, you know, compulsive, like, check-ins to see if people were still, quote-unquote, worthy of SNAP or Medicaid. They, there were a lot fewer of them, right, because we didn't have uh, the people weren't in their offices. Um, no one wanted to go indoors, right, with each, with each other. So people just got to stay on the rolls, and they weren't uh, pushed off of the rolls of, of welfare programs. And like, this is the kind of stuff we could learn from, and we just have to stick with it. And I think there's been a lot of really uh, great, uh, you know, there's um, the American Rescue Plan, the Child Tax Credit. You know, we just we just have to stay the course with that. And then uh, I think. You know, on a personal level, we have to start thinking less about kind of gratitude and this kind of thing, mindfulness, mm. and think more about how the people who've helped us in our life and giving them credit, um, you know, from your babysitter to, you know, your favorite teacher to uh, your employees, right? So this is like a mindset shift, you know, getting yeah. out of the grind set and into this more kind of attribution, this more attributive mindset where you start thinking of other people as making you who you are. Yeah, it's one of the reasons why I always push back after years and always will push back on this notion that you raised earlier. Uh, people who uh, brand themselves as being self-made. Ain't nobody self-made. First of all, you didn't birth yourself. You didn't birth right. yourself. You didn't bathe yourself. <laughs> you didn't teach. You didn't teach yourself. 
Um, you didn't feed yourself. I mean, none of us are self-made. Every one of us, uh, we are who we are, as I often say, because somebody loved us. Even Elon Musk. <laughs> you are who you are because somebody loved you. Ain't nobody really self-made. And I hate that term. I digress on that point. Um, I, no, I, no. You yeah. know what I like to say, Tavis? Um, if you think you're self-made, call your mother. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> point, point well taken. Point well taken. Um, speaking of mothers, um, to what extent is the way that we have, again, hollowed out this notion of the American dream burdening generations to come? Well, yeah, I mean, I think, so I talk about, what you know, needing this parents' revolution, you know, mother's revolution, and you know, part of this is that we don't really have the daycare system. We have a daycare non-system. Is um, uh, And, you know, I talked to people during, uh, again, during the, the height of COVID who were like having their 14-year-old take care of their younger children in their house during remote school while they were working multiple jobs because they made, you know, 9.25 an hour. And I think, you know, we need to like look at this. You know, why does America have give so little of its GDP to childcare and how can we make greater access for childcare? And um, could we have, you know, people talk about UBI, right? <laughs> Andrew Yang and all that, but could mm -hmm. we have a UBI that's just for uh, mothers of young children, right? Mm -hmm. So they can just pay for daycare. Yep. That's going to really burden, you know, that, that burdens our economy to have workers who are unable to uh, work and, you know, raising kids who, didn't have enough care. Yeah. Um, when we come forward in our remaining moments with Alyssa Court talking about her new book, Bootstrapped, Liberating Ourselves from the American Dream. Uh, she's used this phrase a few times, which I love, but I want to interrogate it. This notion of a grind set. It's one thing to have a mindset. These days, we all have a grind set. And I want to talk about that in our remaining moments with Alyssa when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. KBLA Talk 1580 is an intervention. When we come forward... Includes you. KBLA Talk 1580, turning pain into power. Power. Interrogating your assumptions and expanding your inventory of ideas. Let's get back to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. Let's get back to Alyssa Court in the four minutes that we have left discussing her book, Bootstrapped, Liberating Ourselves from the American Dream. You've talked uh, in this uh, conversation, Alyssa, which I'm grateful for uh, a few times about the notion of grind set. Uh, great phrase, love the word. And yet... In times like these, I'm not sure what the alternative is to having a grind set. If you don't grind it out these days, I mean, <laughs> what's the alternative? Yeah, I mean, I guess, again, this is with where the radical self-help part comes in. That, like, yeah, if you're going to be one of the, say, 30% of Americans who do something else for pay in addition to their full-time job, mm -hmm. that was according to one survey, um, or, you know, you're going to be told that this is a side hustle and, uh, you know, that it's cheerful and fun and instead of like they call it hustle porn, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and 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 it just knowing that it's not, knowing that it's difficult and sometimes backbreaking to have multiple jobs can be helpful. So you're not like, why am I so tired by this? Why am I you know, I'm thinking of this NFL coach. This was an insane quote. I, I said that doing your job right means waking up at three AM with a knot in your stomach, a rash on your skin, losing sleep, and losing touch with your wife and kids. Like, this is the mentality that we're being preached about a lot, this grind set thing, you know, uh, where, like, the Lyft driver, I don't know if you remember the story, who picked, continued to pick up riders after she herself went into labor. Mm -hmm. You know, this is these are really extreme 
Uh, and yeah, we may have to work multiple jobs because as we've been going over, um, we're not given adequate social support in this country and people are being paid less than 15 an hour. Even if you're making 15 an hour, this is not enough. But it's at least good for us to know that it's not enough and for us to know that we ourselves have not done something wrong. Yeah. Um, so I think this is the exit question, I think. Um, what is the most dangerous part, the most dangerous part of this myth that we have bought into regarding this obsession with self-reliance? I mean, I think the most dangerous part is what it does to communities and how corrosive it is, you know, and also what it does, as you were saying, how it, how it divides people. It makes, you know, a lot of rate, you know, Republican and Republican identified people blame those who need social aid. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to uh, look at what that has to do with people's voting patterns, honestly, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, um, uh, this is, this is disconnected, but I'll do a, a, a a not so gentle pivot. You'll take my point. Uh, you said voting habits. I, I I think that one of the great things, um, one of the uh, one of the ills facing our society long term. Speaking of dangerous things, is the notion is this notion of gerrymandering. Uh, I think it's hard um, to see how we fix our democracy list if we don't do something about the issue of gerrymandering. That has a great to do a great deal to do. I think with uh, putting the American dream where it ought to be. Absolutely. And not, not say, and also not just saying this is the way things are. I think mm -hmm. what part of the toxin is if you're like, America is so great and you, you buy into this and you, you aren't critically minded about what actually is there and what's actually being done in terms of, you know, how voting is being districted, like you're pointing out, you know, then again, you're blindsided and you, you, you don't understand why your needs are not being met um, by your political leaders, you know? Yep. There's a lot in this book. I highly recommend it. It's called Bootstrapped, Liberating Ourselves from the American Dream. It is written by Alyssa Court, who I've been honored to have had on for this hour on KBLA Talk 1580. Alyssa, thanks for the book. Thanks for your work. Thanks for your witness. Uh, just delighted to have a chance to talk to you for this hour. I appreciate you. Yeah, you too. I really appreciate you too, Tavis. Seriously. Thank you very much. Take care of yourself. Uh, there's our one, just like that. When we come forward in our two, we will talk sports. There's a lot to talk about. Uh, Mr. Hamlin says he's making a comeback to the NFL after we all watched him almost die, as it were, on the field in that game between the Buffalo Bills and Cincinnati Bengals. Uh, Cincinnati Bengals, that is, if I can say it. Um, would you go back? <laughs> if that had been you on the field and the whole world is watching you, um, you know, would you, after – uh, being raised from the dead, as it were, <laughs> go back and do this all over again? I don't know. We'll talk about it uh, with our guest, uh, Ray uh, Richardson and Neil Scarborough, the host of Out of Bounds here on the weekends, our sports show. They'll be live in the studio in a moment on KBLA Talk.